Welcome to Adapt Peace Building with Stephen Gray. Well, hello, listeners. Today we're going to be talking to someone called Duncan Green. Now, Duncan is a senior advisor for Oxfam, amongst other things that he will share with you. And we're going to be talking about something called adaptive management and how that applies to international development work, how that applies to peace building. Why are we talking about adaptive management and what is it? Well, adaptive management is a form of organizing work, managing work in international development settings in which you focus on learning from your context and you adapt your programming, adapt your approaches to meet the specific needs of the context as you learn about it and as that context changes. That's different from a typical approach which establishes a plan at the beginning, has a log frame, implements the plan as it was laid out pretty much, and then evaluates at the end, did it work or not? Now, why does this matter? Well, this matters because people like Duncan and myself and many others are interested in this idea of complexity and the realization that when we're working, particularly in situations of violent conflict, we don't have very good information about what the needs are, about the variables that might affect the work that we're trying to do. The situation is changing all the time and we can't just assume that we can go in there with a predetermined plan and that everything's going to turn out fine. We actually have to be responsibly experimental and learn from our successes and our failures in a rapid way so we can be agile, adapt to the context, be conflict sensitive and ultimately be as effective as possible. So a couple of really interesting conversations along the way with Duncan. Firstly, concerning donors and how we can work with their concerns around accountability, their tendency to perhaps be risk averse and how this creates issues with trying to take on an adaptive approach that changes directions. So we talk about how to build trust with them and work in closer partnerships. We talk about the role of monitoring, evaluation and learning as it relates to adaptive management and how that has a more central and important role. We talk about some really good rules of thumb for when you should be using an adaptive management approach versus more traditional approach. We talk about the importance of telling good stories and about uh, relationships where upwards and horizontal and downwards accountability. And finally, we talk about how we can shift bigger picture thinking, how we might shift the broader peace building and development system to adopt more adaptive management approaches, which many of us think is a direction that we need to go in. So one of the examples that we mentioned during the conversation is Pyopin. Pyopin is a civil society strengthening program in Myanmar that used an explicitly adaptive management approach. It was very successful in a very turbulent and political changing environment in the country and it won Diffid Supreme Award in, in 2014. So if you're more interested to learn more about Pyopin, you can Google Pyopin, P-Y-O-E, one word, next word, P-I-N, 
and look for the example on adaptive management, the draft report on Duncan's blog. I would also like to, at this point, apologize for the poor quality of some of this recording. That is because this is actually numero uno of this podcast series, and we are learning as we go. So things will improve. Thanks for bearing with us. Keep listening. Without further ado, here is Duncan Green. Okay, so my name is Duncan Green. Uh, I'm split between two organizations. I mostly work for Oxfam Great Britain, where I'm strategic advisor, which is a job title that says nothing, but means that people know that you're vaguely in the, in the hand-waving generalization area. And then two days a week, I work for the London School of Economics, where I'm a professor in practice, which means that LSE is trying to bring in some practitioners into the school, uh, partly because the students want it, and outside the LSE, being a professor in practice is seen as better than being a professor. Inside the LSE, it's definitely seen as inferior, but maybe that tells you something about academia. And I've been working on this stuff for about 10 years. You're about right. Um, it emerged during a book that, uh, that I published in 2008 called From Poverty to Power, which got me thinking. It was my first big book on development before then I'd really written about specific issues or topics or specific regions, especially Latin America. This was my first attempt at kind of synthesis. And it had a kind of annex in the back, which talked a little bit about how change happens and started to think a little bit about systems. And then I started to read, uh, come across some big books, big books which kind of shake you up. And there was Eric Beinhocker on Origins of Wealth, which was applying systems thinking to economics. There was uh, Ben Ramalligan, Aid on the Edge of Chaos, there was a bunch of books by Tim Harford, like Adapt, and Billy's Quest for Growth. All of these books were saying, yeah, the planning linear mentality is doomed to fail, and we need to think of a different way of doing things. So that was like sort of where I came in on this. Thank you very much for that introduction. What I get a sense of in reading your work and in talking to others in our field is that this idea that you need to take a systems approach, that there's value in being adaptive, that it's gaining traction. Uh, I'm not sure how much you'd agree with that. I see it gaining traction among some donors that are more prepared to take risks. And I'm thinking of some of the um, philanthropic donors, particularly in the United States that I'm, that I'm familiar with. But also in some of the traditional donors, you've kind of got pockets of those uh, organizations that are wanting to explore and, and sometimes explicitly uh, use and fund adaptive approaches. That would be my second question that I wanted to ask you, is, is how you make the case to donors. Uh, the first question that I wanted to ask you is, when we think about adaptive approaches and we get excited about them because we've read some of the same books, do you feel like there's an evidence-based case that they actually work better? Or are we still more in the um, theoretical space where it makes more sense that we should be adaptive? Or do you think that we actually do have really good evidence that we should be going this way? Okay, um, that's a big question, good question. Um, first of all, I wanted to answer your thing about where the donors are at, and then I'll come back to, to the evidence question. So, so for me, there's uh, a really, I'm surprised by how much traction this has got in the donors, because in, in a sense, it's counter to the other current in donors, which is, feeling a sense of political siege 
of trying to minimize risks and of just trying to keep your head down and not appear on the front page of the Daily Mail or whatever your equivalent is in any country. And so that would urge you to do the same as usual, even if it means you fail. It's a bit like Keynes saying, you know, the secret of success in the city, uh, if you're a financial person, is to fail in the same way as everybody else. And when you fail in a different way, then you get into trouble. And the same sort of thing applies in the aid business. But yet, despite that conservatism, which is sort of in the air, there is a significant group of people who are saying, no, this failure is so bad over the last 20 years that we need to do something differently. Now, who are those people? I think they come primarily from, uh, initially from governance. So the people who worked on institutional reform, on public financial management, have tried to get governments to change or crack down on corruption. They've watched all their attempts come, you know, often come to nothing. And they're saying, this doesn't work, we've got to fix this. And a lot of the big books come from that background. I think they come from some donors more than others. The Australians are very active on this, partly because they're surrounded by incredibly messy, fragile states, which they have to invade on a regular basis just to get things sorted. So they're, being, they're up for it. Diffid's up for it because I think it invests a lot in thought and thought leadership. USAID, I think, has actually done some really good stuff on this. So there's a range of donors. The donors aren't monoliths, and there are little camps within the donors who often see themselves as kind of besieged by other camps. You know, the adaptive people versus the value for money bean counters and this kind of sort of argument. So whenever you have these conversations, people who work in donors usually end up saying, we must do a political economy analysis of our own institutions. But I don't agree with you that philanthropy is stepping up on this. I think philanthropy has largely been absent at the table. And I don't understand why. Philanthropy, you know, big foundations should have a greater appetite for risk. They should be less conservative. They should understand the merits, as many of them were actually born from the private sector, of things like a venture capitalist approach with acceptance of a high rate of failure in return for big wins. I often don't see that. I actually see big foundations behaving like mini-me bilateral donors. And that's a real shame because I think that, that could have really pushed adaptive management much further than it has. Um, so there's some initial thoughts on, on that. On the evidence question, I'm not sure what kind of evidence we need on that. So uh, Dan Honig has just published a book where he's done, he's crunched 14,000 aid projects and concluded that adaptive management works better. We've got umpteen anecdotes or case studies, depending on whether you like them or you don't, on things working better with adaptive management. I think we need sort of clarity on when you need to be adaptive and when you don't. So, you know, distinguishing between complex systems, complicated systems and simple systems is really helpful because you don't want to say never use a log frame, never use a plan. You just got to be able to pick the approach which is relevant for that particular system. And I think we're getting to that. I'm not sure that the resistance to uh, adaptive management is primarily the lack of evidence because I think what we're approaching now is a, is a clash between results and risk. So I think there's, it's pretty conclusive in many areas of complex systems that the results are better if you go for adaptive systems, if you take risks, if you have a portfolio with a spread of risk across your projects, you get more creativity, more innovation. But you also get higher risk of appearing in the Daily Mail. So I think we're getting to the point where those things which are often lumped together, results, value for money, and risk, are actually starting to diverge and compete. And that's where I think we're at at the moment. 
You know, it strikes me as interesting when you look across an entire donor portfolio that if you considered it like an investment strategy, if you were, you know, playing the stock market or investing in a range of, of different instruments, often one would have uh, most of their money spent pretty conservatively. You know, it's going to make you a, a low rate of return, but it's going to be safe. And then you'd often have a you know, 10% or 5% of your portfolio, which was really big upside potential, but might fail, might get you nowhere. And I wonder the merits, and this is really speculating out loud, I wonder if the merits of a, of a donor having that type of portfolio where they're prepared to take some risks, but only in a much smaller way. I've been genuinely spun off with a separate fund and removed from DFID, it would have been less subject to the vagaries of DFID's internal politics and DFID's changes of fashion and interest, which would have given less control over it and less bragging rights, but would have ensured that the organization was not affected. Um, so it's really a question of whether you think control and accountability to donors is an asset or not. Uh, for a, one of these adaptive projects, you know, I mean, staff always experience it as a pain and always complain. Mm -hmm. But it may be that you do want some kind of accountability and reporting upwards as well as uh, in other directions like downwards. But it's, uh, it's uh, something which we haven't got right yet. Have you come across in your work and in, in the case studies work that you've been looking at recently, ways in which implementing organizations have been able to tread that line with their donors and that they want to be emergent and adaptive and that means not pre-selecting not pre-selecting the means at least of their implementation they want to be emergent like that but they also want to be accountable what we found with our donors in, in Myanmar is that we had to say at least something that shaped the type of activities that we're going to do. So we would say, for example, we think that they're going to be advocacy orientated. We think that there's going to be um, some reports that are given to peace process stakeholders, but we don't know what the content is going to be. We don't know if it's going to be an online advocacy campaign or if it's going to be, you know, people marching in the streets or whatever. We also, I mean, pretty typical, I guess, risk mitigation techniques like milestone payments um, so that the donor wouldn't give out money if we said that we we're going to, you know, go and uh, burn down uh, government buildings or something. And that way they felt that they had some accountability and control, but there was still space for us to, to be flexible. Have you come across other means that people have employed to try and tread that line? So we had a really interesting discussion on this in Bologna the week before last. We had 30 people from across the aid sector involved in monitoring, evaluation and learning, doing a workshop on adaptive management, which I was doing with some colleagues from Oxfam. And one of the conversations was, what are the rules of thumb for getting your organization to do this? And there was quite a big discussion on, on how do you work with donors? Because, yeah, donors are not bad guys. Donors are well-intentioned, but they have their own incentives and their own pressures. So if you're trying to do adaptive management and it's making life harder for the people and donors who want to support you, you have to work with them and help them. So I think some things are like if you're spending a lot of time feeling your way to an eventual work program, you won't have results in that sort of crunchy, you know, number sense for a few years. So what do you do in the meantime? Well, you could just try fobbing them off 
but that doesn't work. So what you actually need to do is come up with really good stories of what you're doing, explain what you're doing, relationships with key people and donors, and get them to accompany you so that they don't think you're pulling the wool over your eyes, and they do feel a sense of excitement about what you're doing. It all comes down to relationships and stuff. The problem with that is that there's such high turnover in donors in particular that you have to keep creating those relationships. Yeah, you get a friend, you get them involved, and then they move on to another office, you'll start all over again. Tough. It's almost like that male function, monitoring, evaluation, and learning, needs a fourth bit, which is stories, narratives, relationships. Because no one seems to think that that's their job. And yeah, that's a really crucial job to actually keep telling the story, keep selling, keep involving people. And it's not PR, it's got to be genuine stories. It's no good just trying to you know, um, flannel people. And that's kind of an important role, I think, for male teams, which means male teams have to actually be involved from the start and go with the program. They're not somebody who just comes in as some kind of punishment device at the end of the project. So you've got to rethink male, which is what the conclusion from this Bologna workshop was. And does that mean a higher investment in male from the outset and an explicit intention that you're trying to tell your story and you're always trying to be prepared to have your donor see the the quality of what you're doing yeah i think so so the asia foundation have this really interesting program with uh, with the australian government i don't know if you know about it where 14 of their country advocacy programs found external academics or, or you know, con- sort of academic consultants to accompany their programs and do real-time evaluation. So they would come in every three or six months, see where the program's at, talk to staff, talk to partners, talk to people outside the program altogether, and just sort of reflect back on how they were doing and the choices they were making. And it was a really useful kind of oxygenation of, yeah, well, have we made the right choices? Should we be thinking about doing things differently? To encourage that process of reflection, and you need a budget for that. You need to have, whether it's internal or external, it costs money to have that constant, well, not constant, but regular process of stand back, reflect, adapt. It's not free. No, it's not if you want to do it in a rigorous way. What I've found with smaller organizations that I've worked for is there's a lot of that pause and reflect happening organically because the context just requires you to do that. But to do that in a way that actually brings a bit of uh, methodological rigor or takes learning out of that in a more robust way means that this is kind of hard to do for smaller organizations. I mean, when I looked at Kyopin, it was impressive and obviously quite well resourced in that they could have political economy analysis and they could have regular or semi-regular facilitated sessions in which they would reconsider strategy. But for many organizations, that's almost too expensive to manage something. Oh, yeah. It's not necessarily many organizations, but we're talking a strata of NGOs that doesn't include, for example, a lot of local groups. I mean, I think you're right. that Most organizations do this, but they do it in the bar or the restaurant at the end of the day. And a lot of it's about complaining, right? Because they're saying, yeah, this is happening, that's happening, we can't do anything, yeah, the donors won't let us, all this kind of stuff. So it's got quite polarized and unhelpful. And the good thing about bringing it out from the restaurant and into the office is it acquires status and it acquires legitimacy. And it's not just a complaint about you know, those people. That, and I think a lot of NGOs, including Oxfam, have this kind of donor in their heads 
who's a really mean person. And the donor in their heads won't let them change their indicators. The donor in their heads won't let them adapt when they see that something's not working. The donors, when you ask them, say, well, come and talk to us. You know, we're not that person. We're not that donor in your head. But there's this self-censorship, which is quite badly established. So I think we need to at least challenge that. If it turns out the donor in our heads is the donor in real life, then we need to start going, you know, around those people and getting them brought to talk and forced to do things differently. You know, I think what you're pointing out is a, a cultural shift in implementing organizations, uh, not to mention donors, but in thinking about we're so often as an implementing organization thinking of having to show our best side to donors, having to make our reporting sound better, like our achievements sound better than they actually are. And we feel that we're being forced into that space because the log frames never gave us a, a realistic blueprint print, or was never realistic to have a blueprint in the first place. But what you're describing in terms of being more interactive, being more um, walking hand in hand with your donor, I think makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of points you've raised there. So um, I'll come at it slightly tangentially, because that's what I tend to do. So this trust question is really interesting. So, you know, I think at the moment, we don't have a system based on trust. We have a system based on compliance. But building trust is actually really difficult. And you've got to find an alternative system to compliance, which is kind of, which strengthens trust rather than undermines it. And I'm, I'm a big fan of probation. You know, so basically you say to somebody, okay, I'm going to be, I'm going to do compliance for the first three months. And if that all goes fine and there's no problem, you're going to then start trusting me a bit more. And you have to set out a path where the, le the, the leash is, is let go. Yeah, I did out my own blog. The first six months, I had to get every single post signed off by somebody in the press office. And then after six months, we just said, well, what if we just don't tell anyone and we just stop doing this? And no one noticed. It was great, right? Um, that's probably not a model that you want to replicate more generally, but it worked for me. Um, and then the other point about, about this is, to, you know, you've got to give donors a way to distinguish between bad management and adaptive management because they can look remarkably similar. You know, keep changing your mind, keep doing different things. You're never quite ready to report. You know, is that bad or is that adaptive? Well, you can be sure that all the bad managers are going to say they're being adaptive. So you're going to need some way of distinguishing between the two. And I think this is one of the big challenges in a low trust environment. And reporting is one way to do that. So you're going to say to people, okay, we've all kept journals, we've all kept diaries, you know, the key members of staff, and we've come together. And we think these are the critical moments over the last quarter where we've had to take decisions on the hoof. These are why we took these decisions. These are the people we spoke to. And this is the way we think it's going to go. What do you think? And by the way, if you want to come talk to the minister who we decided to do this with, we can probably fix that up. So it's that way of sort of involving people in the day-to-day. -day. So in the PO PIN paper that you mentioned, I wrote it with Angela Christie, uh, who's a brilliant consultant on this kind of stuff. And we distinguish between adaptive delivery, which is the kind of everyday stuff of spotting when the minister's a bit unhappy or when the official doesn't look bored or when they look excited and going with that, you know, seeing where the energy is flowing in the room. All those skills which any good aid person or any good partner has, that's adaptive delivery. And that's a daily thing. It's a kind of way of being and way of working. It's being an entrepreneur. But then you've got something which is more deliberate, which is adaptive programming, which is this like every quarter standing back. Are we doing the right thing or should we be working somewhere else? Should we be shutting this thing down? 
should we be moving our resources? What, what, what's new in the ecosystem that we might want to look at? And that's a more deliberate, probably a more research-based thing. The other one is much more instinctive. And they're not the same. They're different kinds of people. And the relationship between them, we saw in PRPIN, is not easy. Because the adaptive delivery people, the one people who want to just you know, wing it on a day-to-day -day basis, they don't want to be told to drop things. They don't want to be told to be systematic. They want to just get on with, as they see it, changing the world around them. So there has to be a kind of mutual respect between the adaptive deliverers and the adaptive programmers, which is quite a challenge. The way of thinking about it is that the adaptive delivery people actually don't care about upwards accountability. Upwards accountability is a pain for them. Right. They're interested in bringing change about in the system they're operating on. Uh, and that's all about the antennae being pointed towards, you know, whatever you want to call them, the target institution, the target individuals. So they're hypersensitive to working. And that's a form of accountability, maybe more horizontal than downward. Sometimes then that doesn't include accountability right to the people on the sharp end but it might do and that downward or horizontal accountability is what makes them work 16 hours a day is what makes them give up jobs which are better paid or more have higher status because they think they're getting something done they're making a difference to their country and telling a load of um fairy stories to diffid or the world bank or whoever is really not what they're interested in doing so they experience upward accountability as an interference and they want someone to just sort of free them from this burden so they can get on with doing their shtick. And that's a problem. It is when they're the ones that are paying you and uh, they're also people that are, or organizations that are having constraints and have to demonstrate results or, or evidence to other stakeholders. So I see the point that you're but making. But there also might be a problem if the donors have something to contribute other than money. That's a controversial proposition <laughs> they've got a lot of very smart people in donors and it may be that they actually have some useful ideas so um or useful experiences in other countries or whatever so so that upward accountability may have more benefits than just keeping the money flowing that's right absolutely um you talked a, a bit before about this clash between risk and was it risk and accountability or risk and results which i results. yeah which i think is so true and, and important we're really looking at or thinking about the the headwinds that we might experience in wanting to promote the adoption of adaptive approaches more broadly. And that's a huge one. That's a huge impediment to, to this um, moving quickly or, or moving far within donor organizations. What other headwinds or impediments do you feel are uh, stopping the adoption of adaptive approaches? So. One of the potential sequels to How Change Happens is a book called How Change Doesn't Happen, because <laughs> it's often what you end up talking about. Um, it probably wouldn't sell very well. So sources of inertia, and I've got a very crude rule of thumb on this, which is it's worth unpacking at least three I's, ideas, interests, and institutions. If you're trying to understand why something isn't happening, it may be ideas. It may be what's in someone's head. So, yeah, that somebody in the donor cannot get away from a deeply entrenched idea that they are responsible for this project and in order to be responsible they need to know what it's trying to achieve and in order to know what it's trying to achieve they need milestones and indicators so maybe actually just a deeply rooted idea which is very hard to shift it might be institutions it might be adaptive management if you're going to do it properly it needs a minimum of 10-year projects Aid agencies cannot do 10-year funding, most of them. They have to fund, some of them are even legally obliged not to fund longer than the term of the parliament. 
So it may be that there's an institutional blockage to this, or it may be interests. You know, you will not get. One of the things I like to talk about is why are we so obsessed with projects? There's lots of other ways to bring about change. Scholarships, spin-offs, you know, all sorts of things we could try. But that would mean that we don't get funding anymore. Aid agencies, you know, they live and die by their project pipeline. So you're never going to get aid agencies voluntarily or easily abandoning the project as their basic mechanism, even though the project is built around a lot of the problems that we're identifying with adaptive management. It's built around a sense of linearity, a sense of prediction, and a sense of attribution, all of which become highly questionable in a, in a complex system. But it does actually move past that. That's more the last book, you know, how change happens. But So things like crises will unblock some of these. Generational shifts will, will help with the ideas. Crises will unblock institutions. And advocacy can unblock interests. So, you know, you need to look at ways to get rid of some of these obstacles and not just complain about them. Absolutely. I know that uh, one uh, philanthropic organization, Humanity United, who commissioned Alliance for Peacebuilding to write a paper on adaptive management for peacebuilding. I'm not sure if you've seen it. I can send it to you. But one of their their larger pieces of work is in thinking about the global peacebuilding system, uh, if you can call it that, they're thinking about how to push the adoption of, of bottom-up approaches, adaptive approaches, and systems approaches within large peacebuilding institutions. And I, I don't think they have a, a good theory of change yet or set of theories of change of, as to how that happens. If it's about just showing that in peacebuilding, we've got these cases where it's been much more effective or whether it's uh, advocacy based on some other means or whether it's um, you actually have to work directly with those institutions and find your pockets of innovation or something within them. I don't know how well that's going to work with institutions like the United Nations, for instance, um, but they're trying to come up with different theories of change for how you move the system overall. and. I don't think they're really there yet. One of the things that was interesting in Bologna was people pointing out that actually bottom-up may not be adaptive. <laughs> that actually, what if you want to be adaptive and your partners, you localize and your partners say, actually, we don't want you to be adaptive. We just want trips and, uh, what was it? Um, trips and training was the way they described it. Because <laughs> a lot of partner governments will say, we want trips and training. We don't want to keep changing what we're doing. We want this many workshops this many trips so we can do some shopping and do, you know, see a few examples of things. And that's all we want. So don't be adaptive, please. Stay traditional. And then you've got an interesting sort of clash between things we think are aligned to turn out not to be. Absolutely. No, I mean, that's a really good point. I, I don't think anyone can assume that uh, because you're being bottom up that every partner that you're going to work with is going to be prepared to take an adaptive approach. I mean, one thing that, that we found really useful just to kind of plug the methodology we use systemic action research is that it creates a, a vessel or a container for which you can take adaptive approaches and it, if you want to get on that train although trains the absolutely worst metaphor for an adaptive <laughs> approach if you want to participate in that journey you're coming along for the ride even without knowing exactly where your destination or destinations are going to be. So there's, there's a, an idea that's emerging for me, Duncan, about how to do this well, which is a kind of a, a balance between having some structure, having a process that enables adaptation to happen, but it constrains or it allows adaptation within bounds that are acceptable for the 
parties involved, uh, including donors, but also including the people that are making up the coalitions. And I think in a way, Pyopin had that as well, is that they were setting up these, these containers or these vessels within which emergence and adaptation happen. Uh, in a couple of days, I'm putting up the, we got this group of people in Bologna to draw up their set of principles for adaptive management. And they're very practical because they're all male people. So it's a kind of set of rules of thumb of if you want to get your organization to do adaptive management, this is what you should look at. And I'm hoping that will trigger a conversation with other people and see where we end up. But that's, that was, I really enjoyed that exercise. Very cool, yeah. And so keep an eye out for that. And then the other thing is I'm writing a paper which may be published on how can an INGO like Oxfam use a really bad crisis <laughs> to change its direction because that's what we've got at the moment. And so it's a kind of uh, yeah, window of opportunity piece. And I think something will be published, I'm not sure what, um, in the next couple of months coming out of that. Fantastic. And what particular crisis are you referring to? Is, is that... Um... Uh, to the sudden loss of a large amount of money during, due to uh, uh, stupid staff behaviour in Haiti. Okay, right. Yeah, I did say something about that. Oh dear. Well, I hope that that can be, a, um, as one of my uh, professors used to say, a bit of electroshock therapy that can help you reorganize and do things differently. He was referring to the, the US political system. I think you'd need... Well, in management, it's called the burning platform. We have one of those. All right. Thank you. They yeah, both sound cool. very interesting. So I'll keep a, an eye out for that. Thanks very much for that, Duncan. Cool. Bye, Cheers. Bye. All right, so thank you listeners for sitting through our first episode, for enjoying our first podcast episode on systems thinking, complexity, approaches to peace building and everything else that's weird and wonderful and new in that world. A couple of things you might want to check out. One is Duncan Green's fantastic blog, From Poverty to Power, on the Oxfam website. Can't say enough about it. The other one is our little website, Adapt Peace Building. Check out our blog. There's a lot there related to systems thinking, peace building, complexity, etc. Thanks for listening in. Until next time. Visit us at adaptpeacebuilding.org slash blog.